is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. Rob's off today. I'm Chris Seedens. And I'm Charles Feldman. Is losing weight worth a paralyzed stomach? We'll go in-depth into what may be, for some, the worst of the side effects from Ozempic and Bogovi. Well, Twitter may not have crossed all of its T's and dotted all of its I's when uh, coming up with the X rebrand, we'll explain. And there's a new TikTok trend that doctors actually like. We start, though, with uh, potential side effects from using Ozempic and Wagovi. That's the medicine that some people are taking in order to lose weight. With us, we have Emily Wright, who is a teacher from Toronto, who started taking Ozempic in 2018 to lose weight. It worked, but she'll tell us at a cost. Also with us is Dr. Neil Polvin, a New York City-based board-certified doctor who works with Olympic athletes and celebrities. Both of you, thanks for being with us. Emily, thanks. Uh, Emily, let's yes. uh, start uh, with you. So you started, as I said, taking Ozempic to lose weight. That was in 2018. Briefly, what happened? Well, I lost 80 pounds, um, but it came at it, as you said, at a cost. I developed gastroparesis from taking the Ozempic. Uh, which has, you know, led to me having to take a leave from my work, um, not being able to eat, vomiting sometimes over 200 times a week. Um, it's played a huge role in who I've become now. And now that I'm chronically ill, it's really changed my life. Dr. Polvin, uh, you just heard what Emily had to say and how this affected her. Yes, she lost weight, but the side effects really were costly. Have you seen this in some of your patients? Fortunately, I've not seen it in my patients. Um, it's it's a very rare side effect that can happen as all these medicines do slow how well, how quickly the stomach emptiness, how they make you feel full sooner. That's how they decrease your cravings. Um, usually this can be controlled by just duration and dosing. Um, but like all most medications do have some, unfortunately, some extreme side effects in the wrong patient. So on some patients. So that's something that we just make, make patients aware of. And by the way, we should point out uh, that Dr. Pullivan is not a physician who has treated uh, Emily. Um, Emily, what did your doctors tell you? My doctors told me that Ozempic, often when they're doing colonoscopies and endoscopies, that they're finding patients still have a stomach full of food despite doing the prep properly. Um, and that Ozempic can definitely cause the slowed motility, um, which can cause gastroparesis. Um, they've also told me that there's not enough research yet to tell me that despite I've stopped the medis- medication, if I'm ever going to get better. Dr. Polvin, you deal with a lot of athletes, a lot of celebrities. What kind of advice are you giving them when you've got a, a patient who comes in and wants to get on one of these one of these drugs? Um, we're giving I mean, tons of different things. We almost have a sheet out now just because there's so much stuff in the news like this every day. Um, so we're letting patients know that this is not, A, it's not a permanent treatment for patients with weight loss. It's something that usually we use as a help for patients who have obesity and are trying to lose and maintain weight. We let them know, A, that they're trying to start patients on the lowest dose and not maintain on this medicine for long-term. It's, again, it's, a, it's to get things improved. And then we will talk to them about doing other things to help maintain the weight. Hopefully, it's just lifestyle changes. Um, but we do let them know this, there's some side effects associated with it, from nausea, bloating, diarrhea, especially with Ozempic and Wagovi. 
Um, unfortunately, there's there there are also people get headaches and other side effects are associated with it. Um, the zempic face, those zempic buttocks. I mean, I guess there's all these different terms now for for the loss of muscle mass. We do DEXA scans to make sure they're right. not losing muscle. So we're trying to again make patients aware of all this, the risk to it. But there are also a lot of ways that we're now making sure the patient, we tell patients if you're going to take the medicine, we have to do the things to abate those risks. Emily, uh, what do your doctors tell you uh, is your prognosis for the future? And can I presume that you've stopped the drug, the Ozempic, and has, have you gained back the weight? Great question. I stopped taking Ozempic in this September 2022, so I've been off it uh, just about uh, nine, or sorry, 10 months. I have not seen an improvement in my symptoms as of yet. Um, I had been on it since 2018, so I was on Ozempic for quite a long time. I'm also a diabetic, so it was really controlling my blood sugars. Um, luckily, I have been able to keep the weight off, and I've lost a little bit more since stopping the Ozempic, um, but that's probably due to the amount of vomiting that I'm doing on a weekly basis um, that is continuing my weight loss journey. Dr. Povin, I can't help but wonder, getting back to you, when you talk about this with your with your patients, some of them celebrities, and you, you give them the warnings, and, you know, we, we hear stories about, like, what happened with Emily up in Toronto. Uh, do you get pushback sometimes? It's like, I, I, I don't care. I still want to take it. Um, yeah, we always get pushback. But, again, we, uh, our job as physicians is to make sure that patients are aware of the pluses and the minuses. Um, all medicines have side effects, some more than others. Um, I mean, you could take Advil and end up with renal failure. Uh, you could take aspirin and have an ulcer. I mean, there's all medicines, unfortunately, have side effects. There's no perfect medicine out there. So we play both. We explain both sides of the equation to patients. And by you do the tests and monitor them. And we ICR patients like very frequently to make sure there are no side effects. If there are, we do something to relieve them. But patients also have a decision to understand the, the risks and benefits of medication and, and make those decisions, just like plastic surgery or Botox or um, other medicines. They make that decision once they know all the facts, but the goal is to present them all the facts on the plus and the negative side. The media, right. Sometimes they just hear the positive, not the negative. Right. Okay. Uh, Dr. Polvin, Emily Wright, uh, thank you so much for joining us today on In Depth. Right now, though, if you're planning to visit Europe next year, there will be a new requirement other than needing a passport. Here to help explain all this is Clint Henderson, Managing Editor for The Point Sky. Clint, how you doing? Good. Thanks for having me on. So let me get this straight. If we want to go, I believe this begins in 2024, right? If we want to go to all most European countries, we're going to need more than a passport. That's right. So similar to what Europeans have to do if they come to the U.S., you will have to fill out an online application form to get what is essentially a visa, uh, and you'll have to pay a seven euro, that's about U.S. eight dollars uh, per entry request. Um, the good news is it lasts for three years. Most people should be approved within an hour or so, but if, you're, if your application gets flagged, it could take up to four days. So folks are going to need to really pay attention to this once this rolls out. Now, here's the good news. They've been talking about this since 2014, and they keep they keep delaying it. So I'm not 100% sure it's going to roll out in 2024, but we're certainly getting ready uh, for when they do. And Clint, what is the need? Why is the need? Why is there a need for this? Well, it's for security reasons. They're trying to give their customs officials a break and try to pre-screen some of the people that are coming in. Obviously, demand is through the roof. 
Uh, they're processing a lot of people and they think it's just another layer of protection. It also allows them to keep a closer eye on who's coming in, who's leaving, who's overstaying their visa. You know, all the reasons the United States does it really. Uh, same thing applies for the Europeans. Would this also apply for the UK since, as we know, because of Brexit, they technically are no longer part of the European Union? That's right. Absolutely. Another another benefit uh, in air quotes there on Brexit. Uh, they're going to have to also get get this ETS or however you pronounce it uh, for UK citizens going to Europe. Can't help but think that they're going to have to start a, a, an advertising campaign for this probably sooner than later, because there'll be a lot of people who might not know about this, have their passport, think I'm I'm free to go. And then all of a sudden, you know, they show up at the airport and find out, uh uh-uh. No way. Yeah, I'm I'm worried it's going to be a really a real bad mess once it actually rolls out because people will obviously not all know about it. Well, not only that, but but you mentioned that some people, you know, there may be a glitch for one reason or another when you go online to try to get this. Uh, uh, I'm putting the word visa in, in quotes. Uh, how do you appeal it, and to whom? So you essentially, there is going to be allegedly a whole online process where you can appeal any negative decision that you might get. But if you're up against it, if you're if you're trying to go uh, on a trip the next day and you suddenly realize that you have need this air quote visa uh, and you don't get instantly approved, you're kind of in trouble. And we don't know all the details of how they're going to roll it out. I'm worried, like we saw during COVID, they rolled out all these new policies uh, and it ended up being a real mess when people actually had to do it. So there's always bugs when you roll these technology systems out. So something we're watching for sure. Do you expect the airlines might be forced to step in and say, OK, you, you didn't realize you needed it. You should have had it. Uh, we'll uh, either refund your ticket or or let you fly at a later date. Yeah, I have a feeling the airlines, the cruise ships, they're going to be the ones enforcing it. So Mm. they're going to have a lot of really unhappy passengers. But will they give refunds to passengers? I doubt it. That's not really it's not their fault, technically, if you failed to follow the rules for entry. So um, that's going to be another headache for passengers, potentially. And, And how much is this supposed to cost? It's about eight dollars U.S. But if you're uh, under the age of 18 or over the age of 70, you won't have to pay it. And the good news is you won't have to you won't have to get this visa every single time you go to Europe. It's just once every three years, essentially. My yeah. goodness. Well, I, I, I just can't help but think just more hoops to go through when exactly. we're traveling. You know, we just went through everything with COVID-19 and 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 and, and now this. Yeah. And the U.S. has one of the most the world's most powerful passports. But when you start adding more layers of bureaucracy, it really does uh, put up some resistance, making that process much less uh, frictionless. And again, well, this is this is just to Europe right now. It doesn't include Asia or other places. It doesn't include Canada. That's right. <laughs> that's right. But you know how you know how hard it is to get a visa for a place like China. Um, yeah. Hopefully it won't ever get that tough. But yeah, more and more countries are going to have have this, I'm afraid, because their argument is, look, the United States makes us do it. So we have to make the United States do it, too. Well, how does it work in in reverse? Has it been working OK? I mean, when Europeans want to come here, can they pretty easily navigate the system? Yeah, I think it has worked as advertised. Uh, of course, if you talk to Europeans, they'll 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 grumble about it. But uh, I think from a U.S. point of view, uh, it has worked 
fairly well. Um, obviously, we don't have insight into what kind of security threats they're preventing, but that's the that's the stated goal of all these systems is is another layer of screening of passengers. Of, of course, the, the U.S. does supply an awful lot of financial assistance to European countries, which they don't to us, just saying. <laughs> <laughs> Very good point. Clint, how long, how long has, this, has this been discussed? Has this been so, something that's been gnawing for, for years? Yes. And they, you know, th- it was talked about publicly as as long ago as 2016. So this is multi-year process. And every year we sort of hear about it again and then they delay it and then it goes away for a while. And then as people are Googling their trips to, to Europe for the summer, it comes up again. So um no real news here right now as far as a date, but they are saying they seem to be serious about 2024. I have my doubts, but but we'll see. More hoops to go through when we travel, just what we need. Clint, thank you. Clint Henderson, managing editor for The Points Guy. You know, there are a lot of weird TikTok trends, and we've talked yes. about a, a lot of them on the show and most of them are, how shall I put this, stupid. Uh, but there's one trend that doctors, at least some of them, seem to think it's okay. And a little bit later, we're going to tell you what it is. Right now, though, uh, changing Twitter to X might be harder than it would seem. It's because a lot of other companies have trademarked uh, X. Jeffrey Van Hoosier is an Orange County-based attorney, focuses on international trademark and unfair competition matters. Jeffrey, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Could Twitter really face trademark disputes now? Well, so the the issue is, uh, as you can imagine, is kind of complicated because there's the issue of using a mark. You know, you can just say you have it and you're using it and, and go on your way. Then the other issue, though, is registering it in order to protect it or to enforce it or to make protection enforcement easier. And so that's uh, in the U.S. And then, of course, trademark rights are are very territorial. So you have to look at registering the X mark for the appropriate goods and services in in lots of other countries as well. Um, They're they're, they're definitely kind of behind um, because X has been, you know, extremely popular for a long time, uh, extreme and edgy kind of connotations that it has. And, of course, the obvious ones are are uh, are Meta and and uh, are, um, Xbox uh, with that. So, but but there are probably hundreds of others using X and hundreds that have X registered for various services. Yeah, but but it's interesting because things the examples you're giving, like for example, like Xbox, you know, you can trademark that I, I presume because it it's a made up name, Xbox. How do you trademark? A letter of the alphabet. I can see you being able to trademark perhaps the logo if it's a very distinctive logo, but how do you trademark the letter X? Mm-hmm. Um, it, you know, it's done all the time. If we if we went to the trademark office records and just typed in any letter, we'd come up with um, you know hundreds of registrations just that are for plain plain block letters. Uh, there are some letters that are very common: C uh, and S. Um, in that regard, but um, it's, it's no different than any other. Mark, you may remember a year or so ago back when it was the, where the University of Ohio was registering the as a trademark. Yeah, the, the University of Ohio, right? Yeah. Uh, you, you can go back even further than that. Remember uh, when the, the Wrestling Federation used to be the WWF, but the World Wildlife right. Federation 
already had that name. So uh, after a court battle, uh, the WWF soon became the, the WWE. Could, could we see X be forced to change to Y? Yeah, you know, I mean, if it was anyone but Elon Musk, I would I would venture a guess. But, you know, kind of all bets are off with how um, he looks at things or treats things. I mean, no one, no one else, no other company I can imagine would have done just over the weekend or overnight, you know, this kind of announcement of a change and of a, an abandonment of a, such a well-known, you know, Mark or Marks. Well, as somebody who's who is an expert on uh, these sort of issues, how would you if if he were to come to you uh, and say, hey, look, I'm interested in switching my name from Twitter to X. What would you have advised him to do? Well, so the normal process would be you would you would do an analysis, you do a search and just see kind of what the, the landscape looks like as far as what X marks there are you know, what would be the potential issues as far as getting through a trademark office, um, and then what issues there would be as far as use of the mark that you're not infringing someone else's rights that may have something. I mean, there may be an X for clothing or an X for a certain type of pharmaceutical, and those wouldn't be an issue because um, those those aren't related enough. And then the other added feature is, is X is, is not like um, – you know, Twitter or Facebook, where it's some kind of, you know, unique word or made up word. Um, it's just really been very commonly used for a long time. I mean, brand X used to be the, you know, uh, back in the days before you could do comparative advertising, that was like, you know, the generic version of what the competition would be. Is there a possibility, Jeffrey, that uh, people are just, you know, slinging you know, bows and arrows here at the, at the richest man in the world who can afford to have a really strong legal team behind him and that all the due diligence that's needed to get the change to X has already been done? And, you know, it's, it's possible. I mean, he's had X.com for a long time. You know, he's had SpaceX and he's had, you know, Tesla's had the X model. It's no secret that he hasn't, you know, liked X in, in that regard. So it's, very possible. This is all, you know, I mean, everyone, literally everyone is talking about this. Mm-hmm. So, you know, maybe that was the, the, um, <laughs> the marketing the ploy. Plan. Yeah. <laughs> My goodness. Um, okay. Well, uh, Jeffrey, thank you for, for your, uh, your thoughts on this. You know, when I mentioned before that, could they switch to why I guess they couldn't switch to why because the YMCA already has that. They're the, they're the why. Anyway, okay, Jeffrey Van Hoosier, an Orange County-based attorney who focuses on international trademarks and unfair competition matters. You're listening to KNX In-Depth. Proceedings in for Rob Archer today. I'm Charles Feldman. The impact of the Hollywood strikes reaching far beyond the movie studios and the writers' rooms. Lots of businesses right here in Southern California really, really rely on the entertainment industry. Yeah, uh, Linda uh, Bredeman is owner of a walk-through time vintage and costume annex in Thousand Oaks. Linda, thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me. So tell me... all the time. (laughs) (laughs) Good. Uh, Tell us a little bit about your business and and how the uh, SAG-AFTRA and writer's strike is impacting it. Well, we uh, rent uh, costumes out to independent productions, and we do, you know, if they need... uh, companies need pickup shots or commercials are being done, they'll come to us because we're close by and, um, and, and we're less expensive than the big studios. And so by them not them going on strike, 
they they're not coming into us and if they don't come into us then um you know i can't have my employee work for me my cleaners doesn't get uh my my cleaning from it so it really uh hurts when they're not in production because it it helps us and you know if they're having a party, a graduation party or a wedding or whatever, they come to us. If they can't afford to have those parties, we suffer. And we're suffering to the point that I'm thinking of closing down. Linda, leading up to this, you know, we knew the, the contracts were coming up. Was there any way for you, as a small business owner, to, to in any way prepare in advance of the strike? You know, there's nothing that we can do if they don't walk through the door. It We... We send out um, ads on constant contact saying, you know, that we're having sales uh, for for our vintage clothing, um, you know, a 10, 20 or 30 percent off sale to kind of boost it up. Uh, we try Facebook and Google advertising and let people know. Um, but, you know, the production companies come to us. Um, my employee, Michaela, is really good about independent uh, films. She works with them. And, uh, and, and so that helps us. And we, but we need more of the independents. We need them to come in. Um, and I don't know what else to do other than what I'm doing to get people to come in. You know? Linda, you have, I gather you have one employee. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. I have one and a half. One and a half. <laughs> one. Okay. And how long, have, how long have you been in business? I've been in business since 1996. 1996. Wow. Have, yeah. has, has there ever been, from an economic point of view, I, I mean, there have been strikes before, not both, uh, uh, you know, the Writers Guild and SEG after out at the same time. The Writers Guild, of course, had a strike a few years back. Have you faced anything like this since you've been in business? Well, COVID, of course, killed us. We were closed sure. for two yeah. and a half years. and uh, But even then, we would still... I had stuff in storage and people, uh, you know, wearing masks, they would come and ask for something, but not much. I mean, I think I probably rented out 10 items in, in two years, uh, which, you know, if it wasn't for the government helping us, I would have gone underway before this. Well, it's but, interesting, but that's what I was going to, where I was going with this, because the difference, right. And tell me if I'm wrong about this, the difference now is when you were closed for the pandemic, you were able to benefit, I presume, from some government help that's not right. happening now right yeah and uh, right now what i'm hitting is uh, you know i got an sba loan and um i've been hitting it every you know recently to make payroll because you know my employee's important to me i'd rather her have a job and uh than than me i i live in a retirement community so i'm i'm all right but i need to keep her and her busy, you know, because she's got people that she's, uh, you know, needs to take care of. So, yeah, I, I just, I just hope that they, they come up to something because it doesn't just hurt me and it doesn't hurt just hurt Michaela. It's like I said, the cleaners and and babysitters that stars have and and house cleaners and I mean it just goes on and on. It. You know, they're not buying lunch. Look at the, the caterers who right. are on the sets. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah. they're, they have the lower income people working for them. Well, those lower income people, where do they get money from? Yeah. 
Linda, thank you. Thank you so much. And, and the best of luck through this very difficult time ahead. We're, we're joined by Linda Brenneman. She's the owner of a walkthrough, a vintage time. Uh, let's try that again. A walkthrough time, vintage and con- costume annex in Thousand Oaks. Well, the latest TikTok trend. I love saying Tick, that all the time. TikTok, TikTok trend. trend. I, I, I like saying that. I don't know why. It's just one of those things. Uh, the latest TikTok trend. There you go. Has people zapping their face with red light. The idea, apparently, is to help their skin. It should be noted, usually, when you hear TikTok trend, as Charles likes to say. TikTok trend. It's always followed by a warning from doctors not to do it, but not this time. Turns out red light treatment is something dermatologists are using themselves. Dr. Anna Gauche is a dermatologist at Bella Skin Institute in Calabasas. Doctor, thanks for joining us. Uh, I understand you offer red light treatment. How exactly does this work? We absolutely do. Thanks for having me on. We um, offer the red light treatment. It's called the light wave. Um, That red wavelength specifically goes into the skin and inhibits what we call matrix metalloproteinases. That's a mouthful. That's an enzyme that breaks down collagen. And so it, it inhibits the breakdown of collagen. It also stimulates the mitochondria of the cells in the skin, the cells in the skin that make collagen. And it helps to stimulate a neocollagenesis or new collagen formation. Um, the thing about it, it's a very low grade treatment. It's not a high energy treatment. And so it has to be repeated regularly. A um, couple times a week is what we recommend here. Can be even once a week, but it has to be done consistently. I, now, I'm presuming we're not talking about just like a, a you know, a red light bulb. I, I presume it's something more sophisticated, or am I wrong? Um, ours are LED, and they are red. The wavelength red, the visible red wavelength, and the infrared are the two that would be best for the skin. Um, I don't think if you paint a white light bulb red that that counts. So, yeah, that's but but you're using an LED one, you're saying. So is this the kind of, of light bulb that a person can, can buy and, and do it themselves? Absolutely. There are masks and products you can buy over the counter for red light treatment. They are the same wavelength, but they are a lower energy level and a lower coverage of the skin. So you have to either hold it on your face uh, while you're doing other things or put this mask on and lay there for a period of time and you really can't get other things done. So. The limiting factor for those is that people don't end up being consistent with it because uh, it's just a hassle. Yeah, a hassle I, I can't help but like want... you, oh, sorry. Like when you buy that waffle maker and you never make waffles again. Yeah. So. <laughs> I can't help but wonder if there might be some dangers if people were to do this on their own as opposed to going to a professional like yourself. Like, like maybe being under it too long. I mean, you know, it's possible everything can be overdone, right? But I haven't read reports of burns or blisters or anything like that. Um, but again, everything can be overdone. So that's a possibility. I think that if anything, the biggest thing is whether you're actually getting uh, enough dosing on your skin to do anything for you. And even in our office, this is considered a low energy treatment. That's a very gradual and so slow and very subtle response. So it's not like getting a laser treatment. It's almost like um, a decision factor whether you want to do that treatment and spend the time on it for rejuvenation. Now, if you're using it to heal acne scars and you're doing the blue light therapy to kind of clear up pimples and then the red light therapy right afterward to stimulate collagen to heal a specific you know, scar or something like that, then yes, I would find it very helpful. But just to rejuvenate, 
paint. It's a very low-grade sort of way to simulate collagen. So there's a, a red light treatment, and there's also, uh, depending on what you want and or need, there's a blue mm-hmm. light one? Mm-hmm. The blue wavelength is for inhibiting bacterial, bacterial cell division. Um, it really does help reduce active pimples and breakouts on the skin. It also helps reduce inflammation. So that's more for active conditions in the skin. And then we usually follow it up with a red light if the patient wants to, to help heal any marks that they got from their breakouts or from their rash or whatever. You mentioned earlier uh, the treatment a few times a week. Um, How how often? And and, I mean, is this something you'd have to do for for a number of weeks or months uh, or an ongoing basis? And how expensive is the treatment? Well, ideally you do it uh, twice a week and we usually recommend for six to 12 weeks. And again, it's all based on the patient's schedule, but um, the price for one wavelength here is $45 and two is 65. So it's not cost prohibitive. Are, are you surprised? We mentioned that, that this has become a TikTok trend. Uh, are you surprised? Uh, you know what? Nothing surprises me anymore on TikTok. I'm on TikTok, so you guys should follow me at Amazon. <laughs> okay. But I mostly do it for to be funny. Um, red light therapy has been around for over 10 years, and we've had the device for over 10 years. So it's a trend, quote unquote, but we've been doing it. And there are many other things like microneedling that show up and that we've been doing for 15 years. So like what's old is new again in some ways. And yeah. it's kind of interesting that it becomes a trend and everybody thinks it's new, but they just weren't exposed to it before. All right. Dr. Guanche, thank you again. That's uh, Dr. Anna Guanche, dermatologist at the Bella Skin Institute, Calabasas. So you have red light therapy, blue light therapy. Uh, What we have in here, no light therapy. I wonder if she offers a blue light special. (laughs) That'll do it for In Depth. Rob's back tomorrow. We'll see you again tomorrow at one o'clock.